Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 18 this morning. It's a passage that is very familiar to us because it's one that's often read at funerals or memorial services, and you've heard it in that context. And I think it'll be good for us to look at it today in the context of this letter that was written to the Thessalonians as a teaching related to discipleship. I mean, I I look at 1 Thessalonians, and I think here's an example of the kinds of topics that Paul was addressing for these new believers. And it's very fascinating to me in that way how much he talked even here about the return of Christ. So let me read it for us. Verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Let's pray. Father, what a great passage this is that we're going to look at this morning. that talks about the return of our Savior, Jesus and what will happen on that great day. Father, I pray that as we walk through this text this morning that you would use it to do exactly what Paul said, that we would be encouraged, given hope and confidence. I pray that you would answer some of the questions we have. I know that there may be more questions that come up, but I pray that we would hear the central passage of this, or the central teaching of this passage, that Jesus is coming and that we have a great hope as believers. In his name we pray, amen. One of the questions that many people in our world have is what happens when we die? And from time to time you'll see articles on that and people speculate on it and what's gonna happen after they pass away. And a lot of people have this rosy view or optimistic view that you know life's gonna continue in some form and they're gonna be in this happy place. But that's not what everyone believes. And there are many who look at what is to come and they feel that that uncertainty bothers them. They think that death is the end of everything, of human existence entirely. Louis Palau wrote that death haunts humanity. Poets, philosophers, and other writers through the ages have sought to explain and understand and cope with death. Their answers have done very little, though, to alleviate the tremendous fear of death that people feel. William Saroyan is an example of that. He was an American author who uh, wrote a lot of novels uh, that were very optimistic, hopeful. Uh, He wrote about the Great Depression, the struggles that people had, and their tremendous tenacity to overcome those kind of challenges. His books were frequently on the bestseller list. He even won a Pulitzer Prize. But he was not a believer. And when he was dying, 
And he was in his bed in New York City. His body was racked with cancer, and there was no hope for him to recover. He placed a phone call to the Associated Press. He identified who he was, that he was William Saroyan, and he made this statement. He said, everybody has got to die, but I have always believed an exception would be made in my case. Now what? And then he hung up the phone. Now what? What comes next? Even Christians can have questions about what happens when we die. It is apparent from this passage that the Thessalonians also had questions, and Timothy had brought that back and said, Paul, they are wondering what happens to believers who die before the Lord returns. You know, and here it becomes obvious that Paul had taught them about the second coming of Christ, that this is something that we are to look forward to, that Jesus could return at any moment. And so they're thinking about that. And then perhaps a loved one, a parent or a child had died, and they wondered, will they miss out on this? What's going to happen to them? And so Paul writes here to answer their questions. And what do we find in this passage? Well, the first thing we see is that Paul wants us to know that we have a great hope. We have a great hope in Christ. He writes to brothers, and again, that word is inclusive. It's brothers and sisters. We do not want you to be ignorant about these things. We don't want you to be in the dark or uninformed. We want you to understand what's going to happen when our Lord returns. And we certainly do not want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We don't want you to grieve like the pagan world or those who do not know Christ and to feel like death is the end of everything. So what happens when a believer dies? Well, the short answer is this, that they go immediately and consciously into the presence of the Lord. When a believer dies, their body is laid to rest, but their spirit goes to be with Christ awaiting the final resurrection. How do we know that? Well, Jesus himself said to the thief who was on the cross, who turned to Jesus and said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, that today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, he said that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Either we're in this present earthly body and we are here, and when we die, we are with the Lord. Those were the two options. And in Philippians, when he was in jail and he's not sure what's going to happen in the future for him, he said this. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And a little later he would write that to be with Christ is better by far. I love that phrase, better by far. When he compared the two options, there was no question about it, that to be with Christ would be the best option. But he was convinced that God still had more for him to do in this life, that it would be better for the Philippians if he remained and for these other new Christians and so he was going to do everything that he could to encourage them and build up the church. For the believer, death is still an enemy, but it does not have the final word. That's the difference. 
And the Bible uses the word sleep as a metaphor for death. And that's an interesting picture. It kind of softens it. We use that word sleep because we can relate to that. I mean, you think of sleep, you go to bed at night, you wake up in the morning, it's a new day. When a believer dies, our body again is laid to rest, but our spirit awakes and we are there with Christ. And it's an amazing transformation. Leon Morris, in his commentary, pointed out that even our word cemetery comes from the same Greek word for sleep, and it means a place of sleep or a place of rest. And you think about that with a cemetery, and you hear, you know, rest in peace or an inscription like that. That's where it comes from, from this teaching. The cemetery is a place where our loved ones are laid to rest awaiting the final resurrection. Sometimes people have misunderstood that. Critics, skeptics of all of this will want to say that what Christians believe is just a myth. There's no proof, there's no evidence of this at all, and they want to just write it off. But there are other groups like Jehovah Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists who believe in a literal soul sleep as though when a person dies, uh, their body and soul are there in the grave, and they are in kind of a state of hibernation awaiting that final day, if you will. But that's not what the Scripture is teaching. The word sleep here is a metaphor for death. Death is not final for the believer. It is a transition to the presence of the Lord. The unbelieving world in Paul's day and today as well have no such hope. One of their writers said that hope is for the living. The dead are without hope. They even had secular writers who used the word sleep to describe death, but they described death as one long unending sleep. No more. We will not see them again. In fact, the non-Christian world looked at the early church and they were amazed. One of their writers observed that if any righteous man among them passes from the world, they rejoice and they offer thanks to God and they escort the body as if he were setting out from one place to another. It's interesting as I have read on this how those non-Christians observed the way the church lovingly laid to rest their loved ones. And even that was a witness to them. And I think it still is today. I mean, I see, you know, uh, these funeral services that we have are often one of our greatest opportunities to share the gospel and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And there are unbelievers today who are still amazed And God uses that to speak to their hearts, the hope that we have in Christ, the confidence that we will see our loved ones again. But is it wrong then for a believer to grieve? No, not at all. Not at all. When Stephen was stoned by an angry mob, remember how he was killed as the first martyr? The scripture says that godly men buried Stephen and they mourned deeply for him. They were grieved by what had happened. They were grieved at their loss and they mourned for their brother. Even Jesus, when he came to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who was dead, the scripture says Jesus wept. 
Jesus knows what it's like to stand at the grave of a loved one and weep. He understands our sorrow and our pain when we have laid to rest someone we love. We feel the loss and the separation. Death is painful. We never really get over it. We heal. We adjust to a new normal, but we still miss them. I mean, just last week, Gail and I were down in Wichita with our son Matt and his wife Deborah, and we went down for the week to take care of the four grandkids so they could get away for their anniversary. And it was really a fun time to be with the grandkids. But when uh, Matt and Deborah came back, we were talking one night, and I was telling them a story about my dad, and, and tears came to my eyes. And there are times when I, I still miss my dad. My dad died when I was 23 years old. He died um, shortly after Gail and I were married, but none of our three sons knew my dad, and I wish they had had that opportunity. And I think about my dad, who was a farmer and who wanted me to kind of take over and continue to farm on one sense, but when God was calling me into ministry, he's the one who gave his blessing. And he loved it, and he prayed for me. And I wish he had seen this church. I mean, I wish he had been able to see some of the things that have happened in the years following in ministry. There are times when I miss him, and all of us can relate to that when we think of loved ones who have been laid to rest. But what changes our grief as believers is our view of death, that our loved ones are in a place that is better by far. They are with Jesus, and we will see them again. That is our hope as believers. And secondly, Paul tells us that our hope is based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 14 and following when he says that we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. For Paul, our hope is not based on wishful thinking. It is based on historical fact. It is based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died and he rose again and so will we who have placed our trust in him. It's interesting though that he doesn't refer to Jesus' death as sleep. He doesn't use the same word here. He says Jesus died. Why is that? It is because Jesus died the death that is the wages of sin. Jesus died that death where he bore the full wrath of God for our sins. He experienced that alienation on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He experienced the full horror of that death so that we would not. So that death would be forever changed for the believer. So that death would be like sleep for us. Praise God for what he has done. And Paul assures them that those who have died in the Lord will not miss out on the glory of Christ's second coming. If anything, they will have an even greater position 
For he tells us here that when that day comes, it is the dead in Christ who will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up to meet them in the air. I mean, these are amazing things that Paul is describing here. Paul is talking about what is called in Scripture the perusia, the second coming of Christ. It is this time period in history when our Lord Jesus is going to return. There's a series of events that are all connected to that. And it's that day when Jesus is going to come and establish his kingdom on earth. One day, our Lord will come down from heaven. And it will begin with a loud command in the heavens. That word command is a military term. It's the command that a charioteer would give to his horses when they're about to charge into battle. It's a command that a ship's master would give to the oarsmen when they are going to go into attack. It is a command that will be given in heaven when all the heavenly hosts will be assembled with Jesus who will return in power and in victory. It will be with the shout of the archangel, the voice of this archangel like Michael or Gabriel or one of the other archangels, and it will be with the trumpet call of God all of these things just symbolize this power, majesty, authority when the king of all kings returns. The trumpet call will sound. Paul uses that phrase many times in Scripture. We see it, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 44, where he says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, that death has been swallowed up in victory. Again, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, if Jesus comes in our lifetime, would be caught up to meet them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And it will happen like that, in the twinkling of an eye. The word caught up in Greek is the word harpazo. It means literally to seize or to snatch. In Latin, it was the word repair, which is where our word rapture comes from. That's why if you're looking up the rapture in your concordance and you don't find that word, it's because that word comes from the Latin word, not the Greek that was used here. But it means the same thing, that there is this day coming when a generation of believers will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. There will be a generation of believers who are alive when Christ returns who will not taste death in the way that every generation prior to them has. This is the rapture of the church that will occur when Christ returns. And we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. It's a mystery. It's amazing to us. How, how do we know these things will happen? Well, Paul says it is according to the Lord's own word. We 
have his word on it, that these things are true. Where do we find this? It's not a direct quote from a passage in the Gospels. It came either by revelation to Paul from Jesus, or it may have been one of other Jesus' teachings that are not recorded, but we do see it in other places in Scripture like the Olivet Discord, Matthew 24. Take a look at this passage where Jesus said this. He said, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. I mean, imagine that. Here's this day when you have millions of people who have scoffed at this teaching, who have scoffed at our Lord's return, who have not believed it, who have rejected Jesus. And then this day comes when the heavens are parted and our Lord comes in power and glory with all of his angels. Wow. What will happen as the Lord gathers his people from all the ends of the earth? It's an amazing picture. The rapture of the church will come before God pours out his wrath on the earth in a time of judgment. And those who know Christ will not go through it. You see this picture too where Jesus went on in Matthew 24 to say it'll be like this. It'll be like two men will be in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. He's saying, in other words, you could be playing a baseball game when it happens and one guy's taken and one guy's left. Or you could be at work and one guy's gone from the office and another is not. Or you're having a, a meeting and one... Uh, Some women are talking and gathering, and one is gone, and the other is left behind. You know, I was a junior in high school when I first heard that term, rapture. I didn't know anything about it. In my church, it was not something that had been talked about or taught. And uh, there were some friends of mine, and I can picture where I was you know we're in the church basement we have been having a discussion and some of my friends had read the book late great planet earth by Hal Lindsey and they were talking about that and talking about this event this rapture of the church and Lindsey talked about the second coming of Christ in a way that made sense to all of us and all I knew was that I didn't want to miss it I didn't want to be one of those left behind I remember there were songs that were written at that time about it. Two men walking up a hill, one disappears, the other's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. And you'd hear those words and you'd think about it. Could it be today? Could it be today that the Lord's going to come? Martin Luther said he had only two days on his calendar. He had today and that day. And he was looking forward to it the day when Christ would come, and he wanted to be ready for it. You know, what we don't know about it is the exact time when it will occur, and that is why Jesus said that we are to watch and be ready. The word that's used here, too, for that meeting in the air, this meeting that will take place in the clouds, is actually a a very vivid word. It was a technical term that was used for a formal reception of a visiting dignitary. 
And what would happen was that if you had an important guest, a governor, a senator, a president coming to your town, what you would do is you would have this delegation that would go out to meet him. And you'd, you'd go out of the city. You'd go out of your way to meet and greet this important figure who was coming in, and then you would escort him back into the city. And so what we have here is a picture of these believers rising to meet with Christ and then escorting him back on his journey. You know, some believers have pointed to a pre-tribulation return of Christ at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Some have held to a post-trib that will be closer to the end. Both agree it will be before the wrath of God is poured out on mankind. But what's interesting to me in this passage is that Paul's focus is not on the details. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week when he talks about dates and times. But his focus in this passage is on the outcome, that we will be with the Lord forever. Verse 17, that after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That's the main thing. That's, that's the main thing he wants us to know, and we kind of have fun, and we look at all these questions about times and dates and world events and circumstances. But the thing Paul is most concerned about is do you know Jesus, and will you be with him when that day comes? And thirdly, this hope changes the way we live and it changes the way we die. Paul wanted the Thessalonians and he wants us to be encouraged that no matter what happens in this life, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ, not even death. But he makes it very clear in this passage that these promises, I mean, this is a promise for those who have placed their trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. You know, our world kind of has this impression that all you have to do to go to heaven is die, and everybody goes to heaven, but that's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that only those who have placed their trust, their confidence in Jesus as their Savior and Lord will live eternally with him. For the believer, death will be the transition from this life in a fallen world to everlasting joy in the presence of the Lord. And there will be no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. There'll be no more toil in our labor. There'll be no more wrestling with sin in our life. And instead will be this great reunion with loved ones who have died in Christ, and we will be with the Lord, and we will worship God in that holy place. And it's a pretty odd, awesome description and revelation of what that's going to be like. But for the unbeliever who dies without Christ, there is no hope. They will be separated from the Lord and from the ones they love forever. It will be in a place of eternal punishment, Heaven and hell are real places, and the choice we make in this life will determine where we spend eternity. There's no second chance after you die. The Scripture says it is appointed to man to die once and after that to face judgment. That day of accountability is coming. 
And so for the believer, this great hope changes the way that we live today. We do what Paul says. We make it our goal to please him. That's, that's our motivation in life. We want to please the Lord in everything we do. We purify ourselves as he is pure. We work at our sanctification as the Holy Spirit works in us. We fix our eyes on what is eternal, and we invest our time, our talents, our resources in a way that's going to count for eternity. And we look forward to his coming, just like all creation does to that day when we will be liberated from this bondage to sin and death and set free to be glorious people of God that he has made us to be. And hope changes the way we face death, too. We agree with the Apostle Paul that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Hope changes the way we look at death. It gives us courage. It gives us confidence and faith even in that most trying time. You know, what we see in this passage again is that we have a great hope that is based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with a story that illustrates that. When my dad's battle with cancer came to the point where there was nothing more that could be done and we knew he was going to die, Dad had one final request. He wanted to be brought home from the hospital to be at home one more time. And he had been in the hospital at Grand Forks where he was being treated for his cancer, and then we asked the doctors if it was okay if we would bring him back to the farm. And so that day, we brought him home, and in the evening, we had this meal together, and it was just Gail and I and my mom and dad that were there. And after dinner, my uh, Gail got up with my mom and was doing the dishes and I was sitting there with dad and dad looked at me directly and then he looked over my shoulder and he asked, Rick, who is that man who is standing there behind you? And I couldn't see anybody, but I believe that God had sent an angel to take him home through these final days. There would be a sleepless night. I remember being with my dad as he was in bed just watching and praying and praying that his passing would be soon and peaceful. And we watched as he was wrestling with that because of the pain and agitated. And the next day, my mom said, could we bring him to our local hospital and maybe that will be easier for him. And so we did. We called the ambulance. They brought him into the local hospital. And we kept vigil all that day, all that night as he was dying. And then came Friday morning. And Gail and I woke up on that Friday morning and something was different in our spirit. There was a joy in our heart. Something had changed. It was like the Lord was saying to us, today's the day, Dad's going home. And we woke up and we were singing songs of praise in our heart and we're just worshiping the Lord. And then my sister Elaine called from the hospital and she said, it's time. Could you come in now? And we gathered around my dad, my three sisters, myself, my mom, Gail, and my other brother-in-laws, and we were all there in that hospital room, and we read scripture, we sang Amazing Grace, we held hands and prayed as dad went home to be with the Lord. You know, I think about that, how our hope and our confidence in Christ changed the way we look at death. And I've seen that as I have been with many of you, as you have 
grieved the loss of a loved one, but you had joy in your heart knowing that they were with Christ. I think of that verse in the Psalms that says, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We are looking forward to that day when we will see him again. And my question for you is, do you have the assurance of your salvation? Do you know where you will spend eternity when you die? And if you have any doubts about that at all, that you would turn to Christ today to put your hope in him, to ask him to forgive your sins, to be your Savior and Lord, and to follow him with all your heart. You can have that assurance if you will trust in Christ today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this beautiful passage that tells us about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We look forward to that day. And whether we pass from this life first and go into your presence or whether we are part of that generation that's alive when you return, Father, we're looking forward to being with Jesus and to being in your presence forever. Thank you, Jesus, that you have showed us that we don't have to fear death. Thank you for preparing, for preparing a place for us in your heavenly home. And thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to die on the cross and that you will forgive all of our sins, past, present, and future when we place our trust in you. I confess to you my sins. I ask for your forgiveness. I want to live for you, and I want to live with you forever. Amen.